are kicking off episode 481 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes the not-so-classic genre cinema of yesteryear with the song Numero Loco. It comes from the surf band El Rey. They're based in Copenhagen over in Denmark, and you can find their music at elray.bandcamp.com, and that's E-L-R-A-Y.bandcamp.com. The album is called Transitions. You can pick up the digital album for $10, and it includes this song that I really like, so you're going to hear it in its entirety at the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. I'm your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook. I'd like to welcome you to the show. This week, we are going to be talking about a movie that I originally didn't really like but as time went on the more times i watched it because there were things in it that i thought were worth re-watching i ended up really enjoying the movie and i really enjoyed the conversation that i had about this movie with my friend tracy morris tracy is the high muckety muck over at disney indiana and the movie that she picked was the invisible woman yeah it's an odd one. It's kind of the odd man out, or I guess odd woman out, when it comes to the Invisible Man franchise from Universal. But I found it incredibly enjoyable, and I hope you enjoy the conversation that I had with Tracy about this film. Also, back after taking a well-deserved week off is our man Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Before we get into the rest of the show, I wanted to comment on something, actually a number of somethings, that have happened since the last episode came out. At the end of episode 480, I mentioned that my wife and I, that Brenda and I, were separating, that we're splitting up. And I received so many messages on Facebook and by email from so many of you offering your support. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate nobody trying to villainize Brenda because, well, she's not the villain in any of this. It's just something that kind of happened. But I also really appreciate everybody reaching out to me to offer me their support. And I've tried to follow up with a lot of people. There are still some people that I have not followed up with yet. I do plan on responding. It's just one of those things where it is still kind of an emotionally heavy thing for me to deal with. So it takes a lot out of me to kind of think about it too much but when I do it's also therapeutic so if you have sent me a message about any of this you can expect a message back it's just going to take a little bit of time to get caught up on everything so once again thank you so much that was really the only feedback we received between the last episode and this episode so there won't be a traditional feedback section this week but that doesn't mean you can't send feedback in For next time, you can email me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com or you can call and leave us a voicemail at 503-479-5657. That's 503-479-5MKR. I really want to stress the voicemail because I don't know if it still works. (laughs) It hasn't been used in so long. I don't know if it still is assigned to me. So if you have any feedback about this episode or any of the previous 480 episodes or maybe the Monster Kid Movie Club or the Monster Kid Astronomy Club, feel free to use that phone number to drop me a line or send an email or send a message by Facebook. Heck, send me a tweet. I'm on Twitter a lot more often these days too. I just mentioned the Monster Kid Movie Club and the Monster Kid Astronomy Club. This past Tuesday saw the launch of the Monster Kid Astronomy Club. What is this? Well, this is where I show science fiction movies on Twitch. So you go to monsterkidmovie.club on Tuesdays at 4 p.m. Pacific 
and you're going to get at least three hours of classic Monster Kid approved science fiction. This past week, we kicked things off with a Joshua Kennedy movie and then a Russian science fiction film that was brought over here in the States and then redubbed, as well as an episode of Tales of Tomorrow. And I can tell you that next week on Tuesday, I've got two more really cool movies lined up. I've got Mission Stardust and Battle Beyond the Sun. And I'll see about pulling another episode of Tales of Tomorrow or some other appropriately sci-fi-y short to include in the mix. It was a blast to kind of change gears a little bit and do more science fiction on the stream. And it's free, so please feel free to join us. Again, it's at Tuesday at 4 p.m. It goes for at least three hours, and that's at monsterkidmovie.club or if you're old school, twitch.tv slash monsterkidradio. That's also the same place you're going to want to go on Saturday. And I'll talk a little bit about what happens on Saturday later on in this episode. Speaking of which, I want to get to the later on in this episode. So here we go. spy at large, an invisible man. It's, it's amazing. Oh, you will be of great help to us. Who is this terrifying Phantom Commando? What is his amazing mission? See The Invisible Agent, suggested by H.G. Wells' Invisible Man, starring Ilona Massey and John Hall, with Peter Lorre, Sir Cedric Hardwick, J. Edward Bromberg, Albert Bosserman, in the most amazing story of our times. Did you know? Don't let him get away. Who is there? How did you know I was going to England? I didn't, but. So but the I... trap was all set, eh? Oh, Frank, how can you talk like that? Oh, oh. oh what's this? Uh, it's full of oak, sir. For terror as the screen unleashes the greatest double all-monster earth-shaking shock show. Cronus and She-Devil. Cronus, the most horrifying monster of all time, sucking up the world's lifeblood and atomic energy to keep his fiendish world of outer space alive. And She-Devil, hell's most gorgeous demon. Get out of this if he's human. I'm afraid he isn't human, sir. Not until what he did to that girl. Young women, alluring women, 
hunted down by that relentless fiend whose scarlet page in the history of crime is signed Jack the Ripper. Don't come up here. He shocked you as the gunslinger in Shane. He won an Academy nomination for his gripping performance in Sudden Fear. Now, Jack Palance gives you his most electrifying performance as the man in the attic. Your police methods will never trap the one you call Jack the Ripper. Drawn back from his mysterious errands in the night by the fascination of the girl downstairs. Monster Kid Radioheads, this is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Today's guest, Tracy Morris, is the co-host of the Disney Indiana podcast, along with her husband, Scott. It takes a look at all things connected to that entertainment juggernaut. For this look at FM, we are going to see how Disney was represented in its pages. Early Disney cartoons were filled with witches, demons, ghosts, dragons, and even were-donkeys. But the first Disney film to register a paragraph-long mention was the sci-fi classic 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. It wasn't until issue 143 from May of 1978 in an article about revenge in the movies that a brief synopsis appeared. In the late 70s, when Disney dared to add a P to its G, FM took notice and covered one of the first Disney films aimed at adults, The Black Hole. Let's take a closer look at the coverage of this sci-fi epic. The Black Hole was first mentioned in issue 154 from June of 1979. It was a three-page preview article with two photos. It began with this. What is blacker than the heart of Blackula? Than the evil deeds of the unholy three? Than the Black Hole of Calcutta? The Black Hole of Disney Studios, that's what. Probably, if you search through the Things to Come features in FM and back issues as far back as four years ago, you'd find intimations of the Black Hole. At first untitled, in the pre-production stage, it was the project of one Winston Hibbler. He died. After his death in 1976, a film without a name became orphaned until it was adopted by a Peter Ellenshaw. Mr. Ellenshaw decided to call it Space Probe, a title you've seen mentioned more than once in past numbers. On 11 October 1978, the Disney Studios excitedly announced to the world, We have begun production on the most ambitious motion picture in the history of Disney Studios, The Black Hole. Nearly everything about this mammoth undertaking sets it apart from our efforts of the past. The Black Hole has the largest budget we have ever committed to a film project, more than $17 million. The approach will be strictly adult. We aim to appeal to the millions of sci-fi fans who made Star Wars and Close Encounters such big box office. It continues with a look at special effects wizard Peter Ellenshaw and an explanation of what a black hole is. After a look at the actor's cast, it concludes with this. Starship Cygnus is a major star of the black hole. 
being a fabulous spacecraft a half a mile in length. The Titanic's stellar vessel encounters a super void in the vacuum of space, and at that point, here's where the super secrecy comes in. But our spy in sci-fi land, the Invisible Man, has had his invisible ear to the ground and has come up with the following scuttlebutt. There's some reason to believe that when the principal characters aboard the Cygnus encounter the black hole, they split off in half a dozen different directions and encounter sights and wonders, the likes of which Walt Disney himself would have found dizzying. With the release date set for December, we're looking forward to a bright Christmas with the appearance of the black hole. The black hole was covered again in issue 161 from March of 1980. It was an eight-page article with eight photos. It begins with a discussion of the possible endings for the film, with the contention that one had not been decided on. Forey proposed an ending he had written for a story in his youth that was similar to the ending of the Jodie Foster film, Contact. The article continues with a brief synopsis, then ends with this tease. The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth is what you'll see and hear. Sentinel robots, sentry robots, blasting lasers, a meteoroid shower, air cars bobbing like bobsleds, a mechanical army, a super scientist, insane or a genius, a ghost ship that comes to life. These and 1,000 more thrills from the sense of wonder workers that are the hallmark of Disney Studios. In half a century from Mickey Mouse to Mechie Monsters, the black hole promises to be sci-fi entertainment that's light years ahead of anything the Disney Studios have done before. In issue 162 from April of 1980, the black hole is featured on the cover. Inside, we find a six-page article with 11 pictures. It begins with this historical anecdote. Roy Disney asked his brother Walt to come to his office on an urgent matter. It was 1940 and customary in those days for Roy to visit Walt at the studio when the news was good. So when Walt entered his brother's office, he knew the news was going to be bad. Roy explained that all the profits made from their first feature-length cartoon, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, had been eaten by the making of Pinocchio, Bambi, and Fantasia. Roy thought Walt would really be concerned, maybe shocked, when he told him that they were in debt, four and a half million dollars. Walt just laughed. I was just thinking back, he managed to say through his laughter. Do you remember when we couldn't borrow one thousand dollars? And now we owe four and a half million dollars. I think that's quite an improvement. The article goes on to highlight other risky moments for Disney, with mentions of Steamboat Willie, Flowers and Trees, Snow White, The Old Mill, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and The Black Hole's $17.5 million budget. The article then continues with a brief look at the troubled history of the development of The Black Hole, which included the involvement of director John Huff, who helmed a hammer favorite, Twins of Evil. Because of production delays, he had to leave the project. It was picked up by Freaky Friday director Gary Nelson, who directed the movie. Can you imagine a Twins of Evil-like black hole? The article concludes with a brief look at the actors involved and a synopsis. Later on, FM would cover other Disney films, Tron and Dragon Slayer. We will look at those the next time Disney Indiana comes to MKR. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next week. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. You know, I find the history of Walt Disney productions 
to be a fascinating part of the history of Hollywood and to see all the things that they were trying to do. And sometimes they would fail. More often than not, they would succeed. Just to see all that stuff they were doing in the early days up through the 60s and even throughout the 70s is fascinating to me. And when Kenny told me a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland segment that had something to do with Disney, my brain started spinning. I was like, what, what is he going to do? What is he going to talk about? I guess they had 20,000 leagues. And I mean, they did do the black hole, but that was later in the seventies. And you know, we really don't get it. Nope. This was about the black hole. And I loved it. I actually have a lot of very fond memories about seeing the black hole when I was a kid and just obsessing over that movie. I have watched it a few times over the years and it has aged a little bit, but not necessarily poorly. I really enjoy that movie. It's a fascinating film. And one of these days, I really want to do a crossover between Monster Kid Radio and Disney Indiana to talk about the black hole. I think that would be a lot of fun. And now I'm real curious as to what other Disney mentions occurred in Famous Monsters of Filmland. So uh, I guess I'm going to have to have Scott or Tracy on here sooner rather than later if I can't be patient. Kenny, thank you so much. Thanks for everything that you do for the stream, for the Monster Kid Movie Club, everything that you've done for us over the years here, whether it's here on the podcast, on the stream, or just being my friend. Thank you so much. You're the man, man. Your attention, please. During every suspenseful moment of the running of the motion picture macabre, the life of everyone in this theater will be insured by Lloyd's of London, for $1,000 against death by fright. However, even Lloyd's of London will not grant coverage for any person with a known condition or for suicide by any member of the audience. No, what has he done, Holly? Tell me. Go on. She's not dead. Not yet. That she's in a good big coffin for her don't worry about being scared to death your heirs will collect after you've gone where is she where is she i can hear her breathing where is she bring someone with you to see this motion picture you'll want some live hands to hold during the performance and you won't want to go home alone after it's finished, if you're able to go home. And we won't worry about your telling anybody the ending of this picture, because you may not be around to tell. These are the living members of its cast. If you meet any of them in a dark alley, we advise you to scream for help if it's not too late to scream. Today was like any other, the hum of daily activity until Reptilicus. A beast born 50 million years out of time, spreading terror in its path, destruction in its wake, towering over the cities of the world. Reptilicus. 
invincible, indestructible. Reptilicus. In color from American International. Even after you see it, you won't believe it. Reptilicus. The coffin opens and terror reaches out from beyond the grave. As the twins of evil evoke the power of vampirism and witchcraft. Twins of evil. They use the satanic power of their bodies to turn men and women into their blood slaves. Twins of evil. Rated R. Under 17. Not admitted without care. Listeners, I want you to imagine that the next voice you're going to hear is not in your ear pods or your speaker or wherever it is you're listening to this podcast. I want you to imagine that the voice that you hear belongs to somebody who is right there next to you, but you can't see her because she is, in fact, invisible. That person that I'm referring to is this week's guest, Tracy Morris from Disney, Indiana, and a handful of other appearances she's made all over the place. How are you doing, Tracy? I'm doing well. It's the Invisible Tracy. It's the Invisible Tracy. <laughs> and the good news is I don't feel the need to kick you in the pants. Well, I don't podcast with pants on, so I'm not too <laughs> worried about that. But I may have just revealed a bit much about myself that I should. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> yeah, when when I was watching Invisible Woman this time around and that line of dialogue came up, I had forgotten about that line of dialogue. I, I literally, and I'm using that word literally, literally laughed out loud because of my aversion to all things pants. That was, that was good. <laughs> and that's maybe a good place to start with talking about this film. It is very different from pretty much all the other universal monster films that you'll talk about here on the show or have talked about. It's an odd one, uh, not just in Monsterdom, but in the Invisible Man the franchise mythos cycle especially yeah yeah it, it does not fit for a number of different reasons it's a comedy it's not related to any of the griffins whatsoever mm-hmm. it's completely different but fun i am a new viewer and new to this film i saw it for the first time earlier this year and i've just kind of fallen in love with it really okay I had seen it before. Uh, it was part of one of the Universal Legacy releases. I'm sure I've got it mm-hmm. on my DVD and Blu-ray shelf a couple of different ways. I've enjoyed the film over the years. I've never really been a huge fan, but I mean, I've liked it. It's been fun. But I always have to divorce it in my mind from Invisible Man, Invisible Man Returns, you know, Invisible Agent, all these other movies. Right. This is pretty indicative, though, I feel like, of where they were going with the Invisible Man franchise, even though they returned to a Griffin in the next film, the tone is so decidedly different than the original original Invisible Man, even, even then. So this might have been the way to kind of break free from that really horrific tone that the first film had. Yeah, which is interesting because they still have uh, one of the writers who's been involved in a lot of the other Universal horror films, Kurt Siadmak, is involved. And I had forgotten about that until we I started watching it again and saw his name pop up. I was like, oh, that's cool. But then they also brought in a couple of well-known comedy writers to give it the flair that it has. So the comedy writers I know nothing about. I've been learning a lot more about classic Hollywood and the golden age of Hollywood and all that. But my focus is going to be in the genre stuff just because that's what I love. I'm trying to branch out and learn more about some of the non-genre stuff, but 
comedy. I have no idea about any of these people. Are you familiar with the writers they brought in at all? Well, Robert Lees, he was involved in several Abbott and Costello films, including Meet Frankenstein, Meet the Invisible Man. Okay. Which, if, if I remember correctly, are after, yeah, 1948 and 1951. So it may have been this first initial involvement of Robert Lees in the universal monster film genre that brought him back in to do the Abbott and Costello one. And Hold That Ghost, another Abbott and Costello film. So I'm wondering, he's, he's the comedy guy. Uh, the other mm-hmm. the other name that comes up is Frederick I. Rinaldo, who doesn't have as an extensive writing career, uh, but he also worked with Robert Lee's, it looks like, on things like Evans Kelly Me Frankenstein, Visible Man, Coming Around the Mountain, I think is an Abbott and Costello film. They brought in people who knew the genre, the comedy genre, and then with Kurt Siadmak, you had the, and I even hesitate to call this horror. If anything, it's sci-fi. So there, there are genre elements. Yeah, you know, the Invisible Man side of the Universal Monster cycle, to me, does seem a little removed from Frankenstein, Dracula, and all that, because it's a science thing versus a spooky thing, a supernatural thing. True. And mm-hmm. yeah, I would never call this a horror film at all. I don't think I'd even call The Invisible Man Returns a horror film. It really feels more sci-fi. Yeah. Kurt Siodmak did so much for Universal and outside of Universal. I mean, without him, we wouldn't have the Wolfman as we know him today. Uh, the werewolf uh, mythos, really big part of it is because of Siodmak's creation, not folklore, but something that some dude came up with for a movie, which I mm-hmm. find fascinating. I mean, but yeah, so Siodmak wrote this. They have a completely different cast, completely different characters. It is not connected to any of the other Invisible Man movies. I'm just fascinated by it. Uh, at this point, mm-hmm. I, I am finding myself enjoying it more and more. I think the first time I saw it, I was a little disappointed. I thought, oh, I want more, you know, mean invisible people to do something, you know? <laughs> and I guess she does get a little mean by kicking somebody in the pants. That's not really a nice thing to do. But, you know, I, I guess I just wanted a little bit more of an edge the first time. But right. as I've grown and as I've watched it a few times over the years... I'm fascinated by this movie because of everybody that's involved, not just behind the camera, but in front of the camera. Right. I mean, when you've got names like John Barrymore and Margaret Hamilton and Shemp Howard. Yeah, you've got one of the Stooges in here. What the heck? Yeah, I'd love to know. I mean, I know, again, from doing a little bit of reading that some of this was supposed to be, you know, people owing Universal Films in their contract, and I got to wonder if, if some of that was, was going on. But, like I said, it's, it's got a lot of names that you'd recognize or faces you recognize. Speaking of people that, you know, part of a contract, Margaret Sullivan was supposed to do this movie uh, as the lead actress, as the Invisible Woman. She had one film left on her Universal contract, but she did not want to do it. She wanted out of Universal. She's just, she was done. She wanted to move on. Mm-hmm. So they brought somebody else in and then Universal actually had a, uh, it was a cease and desist letter or, or something along those lines, a restraining order mm-hmm. to keep her from working for anybody else until she completed her Universal contract. So she ended up doing one more movie for them, but it wasn't this one, which I think is okay because Virginia Bruce is great. 
Yes, she's definitely a standout. I'm not familiar with her from anything else. I'll be under. I'll be honest, but yeah, she's just a really feisty, interesting character. I mean, she takes the role of, well, yeah, sure. Try turn me invisible. Go for it. <laughs> and I thought it was interesting, you know, that she didn't identify herself as a woman when she responded to Professor Gibbs' ad because yeah. she was suspected. What? What? How did she phrase it? She didn't, didn't want it to be one of those girls-only ads. Yeah, I'd be curious to hear a little bit more about these girls-only ads that were placed in the forties. Um. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a lot of little cultural things that I think now that we're 60, 70 years later that we're missing out on. Missing out on, yes. I'm, I'm missing out on the girls only ads. Although I probably could find something similar on Craigslist today. I'm um, sure. Yeah. Anyway, Virginia Bruce, I don't know much about either, but she is feisty. She has some agency of her own. And I think that's one of the things that I respond to really well mm -hmm. about some of these characters that turn up in these movies. I don't know if we have Kurt Siodmak to thank for it. I don't know if it's part of the screwball comedy tradition, but she is somebody who is independent and has her own goals and desires and drives in this thing. And it's not totally self-centered. There are times in the film where she demonstrates that, yeah, she's genuinely a good person. When the mobsters show up and they're lying to the professor about who they are, she's like, no, that's not who they are. They have guns. This is what they did. Totally unprompted. She didn't have to do that, but she's a good person, so why not? And the fact that she stood up for her fellow dress models, you know, even before she had any power to do anything about it was another thing I really liked about her. That's true. Yeah. She didn't wait until she got her superpower to do something and it cost her her job mm -hmm. doing so. And she tried to get the other ladies to join in with her, but no, she was on her own and she was okay with that. So we're kind of dancing around. We've kind of dipped into the story a little bit. This movie has nothing to do with The Invisible Man or The Invisible Man Returns or any of the other films. It's a completely standalone story that feels very light. It's not a very deep and heavy story, despite the fact there's some pretty incredible things happening. You've got John Barrymore as this scientist who is being financed by this family for whatever reason. <laughs> uh, to, <laughs> to make people invisible, to create not necessarily an invisibility formula because there's more to it than that. And that wasn't really even what they just want him around. It's like they're his patrons. Yeah. He came up with a rat trap, I think. That was the last thing he actually made money on. That yeah. they make brief reference to. So it's it's kind of like the, there's a rich family. It's the the Russells. And the the younger Russell is kind of a playboy. Well, more than kind of a playboy. Yeah, he finds out that he's frittered away his money and therefore can't afford to support Professor Gibbs anymore. And the professor's like, well, wait, wait, I've got this invisibility tool. So it's a combination of an injection and the machine. He just needs a human subject to test it on. And that's where Kitty comes in. When you need a human subject for some crazy experiment, what you do is place an ad in the newspaper. That, that, that's what you do, yep. I guess, in the 1940s. <laughs> it reminded me of the, the ad that floated around a while back. You know, somebody who wants to go on a time travel mission with, you know, looking for a time traveler partner. Mm -hmm. I can't remember the exact, but it, it read like that. 
We need somebody to become invisible. No remuneration. Well, it was originally going to be $3,000, but when um, Richard Russell cut his funding, he's like, no remuneration. <laughs> and Kitty went for it anyway. She phrased it, what, a call to adventure? Yes. Yes. I think that's what I, I started kind of like, oh, I like this girl. She was in it for the adventure, the the, the experience. A little over eager. I, I did question the first time I saw this. She just shows up, talks her way in when she get, they try to turn her away because she's a woman. Mm-hmm. Gets in there anyway and is down for whatever. Yeah, here, inject me. Sure, yep. let's do Go it. For it. I, I, that's not what... <laughs> that's not really a controlled experiment, but uh, okay. No. <laughs> it's, it's, well, okay. She, she did have a bit of an ulterior motive because she does mention a couple times. Can you imagine? What would you do if you were invisible? Yeah. So she, she plans on using that superpower, for lack of a better term, to mm-hmm. pay back her former boss. <laughs> which works really well, by the way. Oh, yeah. So she is a model. Like you said, she's a dress model. Uh, she works for this department store. Her boss is Mr. Growly, played by Charles Lane. What a great name for a mean boss, too, right? Yeah, I love that. Growly. Oh, so good. So, and Mr. Growly's a jerk. I mean, you are two minutes late, you get docked an hour's pay. You sneeze or sniffle in front of a client, you're fired. He is a slave driver. And if anybody steps up to him, oh, you don't want to work here either? It's It's very... Growly. <laughs> He's so growly. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, when she does become invisible, even though the professor wants her to stick around to kind of test some things out or whatever. She's out of there. <laughs> she's done. She's like, yep, I'm done. I'm out. And I mean, just like in the other Invisible Man films, she's running around town naked. But we don't see anything. Yeah. Right. And that's one of the, the reasons that the professor objected to having a female victim, and he always uses the term victim. I don't know if you know. He really that. does. He really does, which wouldn't inspire confidence in me. No, but. not at all. But but the fact that she was would be naked. And she's like <laughs> that again. And I wonder if having worked as a model, you know, she had very little modesty to start with. So she's like, yeah, sure, whatever. Here's my clothes. Here's my dress. Put my hat. Yeah, take care of my hat. I, I noticed that, too. And I noticed the first time we meet Mr. Growley, he just kind of barges into the ladies' dressing yeah. room. And some of them, again, we're not seeing anything. It's the 1940s. It's, but Yeah, it's he, slips. and Yeah, you're seeing some slips. People aren't fully dressed yet. And he just does not care. And the models don't seem to care either. They don't do the, there's a man, and, you know, and kind of cover themselves. I don't know what that voice was, by the way. <laughs> wow. Did you go through the invisibility machine without I, the uh, serum <laughs> apparently <laughs> we'll get to that in a moment oh yes yeah and i love when she shows back up at growley's office and she tears the place up it's great she does and we really get to see the technical achievement of the special effects here one of the things the invisible man movies do incredibly well from universal are the effects whether yes. it's seeing an invisible person walk around while they're wearing clothes uh the the reveal uh, in the first film from the invisible man uh, her getting dressed undressed while she's invisible knocking things over things or moving around without her being there without us seeing her being there anyway and when she tears this place apart it's making me think of like a bed knobs and broomstick style kind of things just kind of gets going all over the place and i love it yeah in fact, um, 
the Invisible Woman was, was actually nominated for the 1942 Academy Awards for special effects. Really? That's great. Yeah, yeah that's, that's such a relatively lightweight film got that kind of uh, recognition, I think is kind of awesome. Yeah. But yeah, I, I found myself watching each one of those scenes. It's like, okay, did they do this? Was this all puppetry? Was this the equivalent of green screen at the time? There's a couple of places where it doesn't quite hold up. But again, if you put yourself back, I think 1940s technology, 1940s capability, it's pretty impressive. Specifically, there's a moment where she is putting on and taking off gloves as mm-hmm. when she's invisible, where you start to see some of the the seams, so to speak, of the effects coming apart. But I felt like the puppetry part of it, the making objects move. Yes. Fantastic. And my favorite moment of this is when we have a medium shot of a door and the camera slowly moves in to an extreme close-up of the doorbell and then the doorbell depresses itself because she's ringing the doorbell. That shot, I mean, you've got this moving camera doing something, and these are not small cameras back then. These are big machines, mm-hmm. right? So you've got this big machine, this big camera moving into this extreme tight shot of this doorbell that's about to ring itself. And I know full well there's probably just somebody on the other side of the door. There's a stick glued to the underside of the button. Yeah. He's just pulling it. <laughs> I know. It's not that technically advanced, but it looks so cool. Now, see, the scenes I really liked is the, the whole brandy, drinking the brandy scenes. So they've got, <laughs> they've got goblets of liquid that they're puppeteering and managing not to spill that and when she lays down on the on the fur rug and it actually depresses and we've seen like footsteps in the snow before Mm -hmm. but it's a a fur rug i don't know how they did it but it looked really cool i'm sure i could analyze it and, and people probably have and it's probably available out there to try to figure out how it was done but man it looked cool so we have, yeah, Kitty getting her chops back at her former boss. Now she does come back to before we, uh, the before professor's we move, lap. Before we move away from Mr. Growley, I want to ask you, the first time you saw this, I thought she was going to throw Growley out the window. <laughs> yeah, I did too at first. It's like, oh, this is getting dark. But like no, this- she just slams the window down on him and k- kicks him in the pants. Yeah, I was I was a little concerned that this movie was about to take it. I thought this was a comedy. I don't understand. Well, hey, wait a minute. Yeah. Well, we've seen in previous installments of the Invisible series that the serum or the treatment drives you insane. Yeah, but no, she just closes the window yeah. on his head and hands to keep him in place while she gives him a good pants kicking. Mm-hmm. Although now it would have been a much more, a very different movie if that had happened. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but this and does, much more in keeping. <laughs> this does change Mr. Growley's attitude. So whatever she did mm-hmm. and keeping him alive did make him a much nicer and amiable employer. But yeah, after she's done with that, then she goes back to the house to hook back up with Professor Gibbs. And well, I mean, she has to go back there anyway. Her clothes are still there. True. And that's another thing I'm looking at kind of some of the notes is at the time of its release, it was considered a little risque because they do comment multiple times about her being naked. When she's invisible, she obviously has to be naked. Yeah. For it to work. 
which I don't know if they would have been able to get away with if this was a darker movie. And just kind of knowing the sensibility of how the studios and the rating systems worked back then, heck, okay. maybe even now. If it was a dark horror movie, would they let her be naked? I don't know. Huh. Yeah, I, don't know. Well, I, yeah. I like that, co- that that idea that because it was a comedy, they were able to make light of, oh, she's she's in you know disarray. Yeah. No. And I, I do like that mm-hmm. um, Dick Russell, the, the, the leading man, so to speak, automatically assumes that if she was willing to be turned invisible, she must be fat and ugly. I thought that was very telling of his character. Very much so. What a, what a oh, yeah, jerk. Starts off kind of a jerk. I mean, he's established to be a rich, spoiled brat, pretty much. He treats, and, yeah. he treats his long-suffering su- butler terribly. The family advisor, he sasses back to him. So, yeah, he's just not that great a person at the beginning. What did you think of the butler? Oh, God, I love him. <laughs> I love George. Oh, he was really and good. He, yes, it, Charles Ruggles uh-huh. is the actor, and he provides us with our Disney connection. Uh, you got one. I know you said something right before we started recording. What do you got? He was Charles McKendrick in The Parent Trap. Okay. And he also lent his voice to the Aesop and Son features in Rocky and Bullwinkle. Oh, wow. Which is not Disney, but still fun. He was definitely a huge part of the comedic tone, just his reactions to everything going on around him. As as the hijinks ensue, he was right there in the middle of it. He's kind of stuck in that he doesn't grow very much through the entire film. No, That's the no. same things that startled him at the first start of the film continue to startle him all the way through the film, despite being, sure. you know, exposed to the Invisible Woman's hijinks. But I love it. My favorite mm-hmm. moment with him, though, is not anything with the Invisible Woman. It's when he's going up after uh, his employer as he's storming up the stairs. And it's this big curved staircase mm-hmm. going up. And the butler has a ladder there for some yes. reason or other. I guess he was cleaning something. I don't remember mm-hmm. why the ladder was there. But as our hero, quote unquote hero, is going up the stairs, the butler is kind of trying to cut him off, basically, or follow along up the ladder. The hero doesn't stop and neither does the butler. And he takes yeah. quite the fall, and I like it. Yeah, yeah. There's, like I said, a lot of physical pratfall elements that yeah. that actor performs or his stunt actor performs. That Whoever it was. Man, yeah. I felt bad for him. Like, dude, you're, you're taking your lumps. And all the times you fall onto the floor, that can't be fun. Because <laughs> he no. faints a lot. Yes, he does. But and you mentioned the floating brandy bottles and such. Yeah, that was really well done, too. Incredibly well done. Yeah, I mean, they poured from a decanter into a glass. Yeah. All, all via puppetry. So um, we mentioned that John Barrymore... You know, the, the well-known distinguished actor is in this film as, as Wikipedia puts it, the dotty old inventor. <laughs> Again, I really liked his character. He's just kind of, he's got his own little vision. He's <laughs> worked, you know, worked so hard to do it. I, I'm still not quite sure why he was trying to keep her so much a secret from the butler when they go up to the lodge to track down Dick Russell. Yeah. The leading man. But, um. Yeah, there was a lot of potential for humor there. Now, I did read 
that Mr. Barrymore, since he was later in his career, if, if you know anything about him, you know he was very much an alcoholic. Yeah. And they had to kind of sprinkle his um, script on cue cards all around the set. And I was trying to watch for that in the second viewing to see if his eye, you know, his eye lines were off. And I, I didn't know. I got so caught up in the story that I kind of forgot to watch for that. You know, I didn't notice it myself this time around either. I was, I was trying to find where he's got lines hidden. And, and some of the things said that they were hidden behind vases and, mm-hmm. and uh, glasses and things like that. But half those glasses are levitating. So I'm right. not sure how that worked. Uh, I, I didn't see it. I thought he did a really good job. Now, the Barrymore's legendary family, right, in Hollywood. Uh, right. And, and with good reason. When they're on their game, Man, they are incredible actors. And John Barrymore had one heck of a career. This was towards the end of it. And this might have been like the third to last film before he passed in 42. But he had one heck of a career. And there's a reason for that. He is good. Started in the silence and just moved on. And I wonder if he was relying on his training from being in the silent films for some of the more comedic reactions to things in this film. Because there, there is kind of a silent film jive going through some of this. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, but I love his reactions to things. I love <laughs> some of the lines in the back and forth and his just kind of scoffing at what's happening around him. It's just great. Mm-hmm. It's fun. Yeah, very much. Could be, he plays the absent-minded professor to yeah. a T. Oh, yeah. He totally could have been the absent-minded professor there. Or uh, the guy who invented Flubber. He could have been that kind of character, you know. He could. He was just great. Mm-hmm. Want to hang out with him some more. And John Howard as Richard Russell does kind of grow. He does eventually come around to being sort of likable, but he still kind of has to be rescued by Kitty, which is still yeah. nice. Yeah. Yeah. I, I enjoyed that. Well, she res- yeah, she rescues herself as well. Yeah, that's true. So let's let's talk about what she has to be rescued from. She's not the only person who looked into that ad. Mm-hmm. We've got, are they mobsters? I, I guess. It's never really said. There's there's the boss mm-hmm. who's in Mexico, so he's some he's had kind of been run out of the country for whatever reasons. There's a couple things he says. He never quite right out says where he's from, but I get the feeling it was supposed to be Chicago. Yeah, because he definitely you know talks about you know the lake, missing the lake, missing you know his power and his status. So he's homesick. He wants to go back. So he sends his, I'm guessing like his, his main guy's top guy in charge and a couple of other thugs. And Shemp. <laughs> yeah, and Shemp, yeah, was one of the thugs <laughs> to go find out about this invisibility tool, Ray, whatever it is, because he wants to sneak back into the country and go visit his, his homeland. So they're supposed to steal the device. Donald McBride is kind of the leader of this group. His nickname is Foghorn. He's got a great voice. Oh, yeah. And I'm trying to think of where else I know him from. I mean, he's got a huge filmography. He was in Marx Brothers movies. He was in Abbott Costello movies. Oh, good. So, okay. But yeah, he is, so he's kind of the lead of this this group of thugs. And they, they first try to kind of charm their way into talking with the professor. I think they're they're offering to finance him or something like that. Yeah. And that's where Kitty, who had overheard them talking outside about their plans to actually kidnap the professor, kind of breaks in and says, Nope, that's not what's happening. 
they're lying to you. They've got guns. There's something going on. And she's, of course, still invisible, which they didn't seem nearly as phased by. Now, I think you have to be hired help to be freaked out by it because Margaret Hamilton, as I guess the housekeeper, also mm-hmm. seems to be a little uh, easily shaken in yes. the film. Everybody else seems to be totally cool with it. I don't know. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know if that says something about the cast system or what. But <laughs> <laughs> So she rats them out. They leave. But then they come back in the dead of night and they steal the equipment, but not the injections. <laughs> and the reason they're able to get in and break in is because the professor and Kitty have gone off after Dick Russell, who has gone up to his lodge for the weekend. Yeah, there's this implication. I guess it's not really implied. It's, it's pretty much stated. He's out of money. Mm-hmm. But he still has this lodge he can just go retire to whenever. Okay, whatever. But yeah, he's going to go fishing. And so they've got to go show him what they can do and let the story progress. And it's a little chilly up there at the lodge. (laughs) And of course, Kitty, when she's invisible, has to show off her invisibility by stripping down to nothing. Uh Uh-huh. And she takes a couple little nips of brandy to warm herself up. What is it about brandy? This has come up during Social Distance Saturday as well. Brandy seems to be the liquor of choice in a lot of these monster and genre films of this era. I don't know why. Is it more sophisticated? Maybe. Than like whiskey or gin? Maybe. I don't know. But it seems to be a thing. So she can't hold her liquor. No. She she gets, yeah, after like three sips, she's she's a little sozzled and starts (laughs) flirting with uh, Dick Russell. Yeah, that's where he's like, well, yeah, you must be fat and ugly in order to... uh, want to be turned invisible so he's not having any of it but at the same time he kind of starts flirting back too so there there's some fun it's that typical bantering back and forth i'm not really that interested in you but the more we talk the more i kind of am getting interested and that that was another really fun scene i enjoyed watching yeah the back and forth between the two of them i thought their chemistry was really good uh, especially considering that for most of it Virginia Bruce really isn't standing in front of him having the conversation. Exactly. It's, it's all from off screen. So uh-huh. as, as characters, they seem to have some good chemistry. And I liked that. Maybe, maybe uh, Playboy Dick needed a little bit of kitty to keep... Boy, this is... <laughs> um, maybe he needed a little bit of kitty to kind of calm him down and, and settle him out a little bit. Yeah, he needed a woman who could stand up to him and wasn't impressed necessarily by his wealth. I don't know if we'd see similar, I don't want to say body shaming, but there are a couple of comments made in the film about, oh, you must be fat and ugly if you're going to be invisible. Uh, And later on in the movie, when we do meet the boss, the mob boss who wants to turn invisible to go back home, it's a Professor Gibbs that makes the comments. Well, I can understand why you'd want to be invisible. Look at you. You know, something like that. (laughs) Like, yeah, come on, man. But it's that banter, it's that style of just back and forth kind of playful comedic banter that I love throughout the entire film. Yeah, and it's not just between the two romantic characters, it's kind of between everybody. It's a very 1940s feel to me. I get a little bit of like Thin Man off of it, which Mm -hmm. I think has some of the best dialogue ever, by the way it's delivered. So a little bit of Thin Man there, it's kind of cool to see people like Margaret Hamilton have some bigger physical reactions on anything she did in Wizard of Oz. Uh, you know, it's just the 
the playfulness of everything here that everybody has, even somebody like Margaret Hamilton or Charles Ruggles, especially Charles Ruggles, mm-hmm. it's just enjoyable. And I really urge people, and not that we're wrapping up here, and I'm saying this again later, but I would really urge people to give this movie a second chance if you've watched it once and kind of written it off because, oh, it's not an Invisible Man movie. It's its own thing. It's its own thing, and it's darn good at being its own thing. Yes, it really is. I mean, it's it's got some fun. The equipment design for the invisibility equipment, love it. Did you think of Christopher R. Mim when you were watching it? Oh, I, I just kind of generally thought of, you know, the same 1940s, 1950s. Just Actually, I thought of The Crimson Ghost. Oh, yeah. That seemed a little bit more. Because we've been watching yeah. a lot of that thanks to Social Distance Saturday. I love that kind of retro science fiction futurism design mm-hmm. of gadgetry i just love that stuff there's some cool stuff here too and i love the way they have it built with the screen mm-hmm. so you can see somebody turn invisible without actually watching them turn invisible this is really right. cool right because she was naked and certainly couldn't have her naked on screen but you could show her outline which I really enjoyed. I mean, I, I think the look of the machine is cool. Now, they bring the machine down to Mexico, but they don't have everything that they need to turn somebody invisible. And it does something else. <laughs> An odd something else. Yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. trying to imagine how that was the effect of a, a, the second part of an invisibility process. Yeah. How did... What? <laughs> I don't understand. But you're referring to Foghorn, right? Yeah. Yeah, Foghorn yeah. and then also um, Blackie Cole, the, the gangster boss, gets affected the same way. It's so odd. Mm-hmm. But again, fun. Oh, Light- yeah, yeah. It's the lighthearted elements. Are we going to tell listeners what we're talking about? No. Nah. No? Okay. We don't want to spoil the whole movie. There, there is an interesting side effect or half effect or whatever. Yeah. But again, it's not bad. It's not like somebody got turned inside out or whatever. No. You know, like no, in the fly, it's, it's just like... Again. Lighthearted. Lighthearted enough to lend itself to jokes later on in the movie. Which, again, I really appreciate the way this was constructed. It's not just little one-liners here and there. There are things that are set up that can be played with throughout the rest of the film. Yeah. I I love the way the alcohol element feeds back into the the climax, quote-unquote, the climax of the film. Yeah. Yeah, we do all get back yeah. down. Everybody gets down to Mexico for the big climax and confrontation. And yeah, the way the alcohol comes back in again, it's a callback to what we saw earlier in the film. And, and you can tell that Kitty is aware of what she's doing. It's not like, hey, I'm going to have another drink because I'm cold. She sees the alcohol. You see the recognition right. on her face. You can tell that mm-hmm. she's the one making the plan to save everybody. Yes. I respond so well to women who are in charge and know what they're doing. <laughs> I may have just revealed a little bit more about myself today, but... <laughs> But again, and she's using her brain. Yeah. She's using her, her intellect and then not just, I mean, she, she kind of, I'm trying to think, does she flirt with the gangster? She doesn't really. Not really, no. I mean, she's a she's a pretty woman. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's a model for crying out loud. So, you know, she's attractive, you know, especially for this era you had to be for that particular work, right or wrong. You know, she's she's an attractive woman. But. That's not all she is, and she doesn't have to use those assets to get ahead throughout the rest of the film. Right, and that's that's another thing I appreciated. And there's a little thing that happens at the end of the movie that I also really enjoyed. It's kind of like this little stinger, could there be a sequel if they wanted to kind of thing. Yes. 
And, you know, we never got one, unfortunately. I would love to see a follow-up to these characters and see them get into another jam and have to save Professor Gibbs from something that he did. You know, something Mm -hmm. along those lines. Uh, Because I I really want to just hang out with these characters a little bit more. It was a lot of fun. Uh, The music is by Frank Skinner, who is probably stock music that Universal had. So maybe that's a connective bit of tissue to go back to uh, some of the other Invisible Man movies because he was one of the people on Universal staff to do a lot of those films. But otherwise, again, it's its own standalone thing. People just having this fun adventure and we're along for the ride. Yeah, it, it really is more of like a screwball comedy with a yeah. little bit of adventure thrown in, a little bit of science fiction thrown in. Um, looking at the, um, again, the Wikipedia, the reviews weren't that great. Um, it got called silly and banal and repetitious. Somebody else said it was laugh-packed, brightly dialogued, a lot of fun. I agree with that a bit more. Yeah, me too. Me too. Yeah, it, it is a lot of fun. It's those people are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I can't say that. Maybe there are people here uh, that are listening to this who just don't like the movie, and that's fine. But mm-hmm. Tracy and I both really enjoyed it. I thought it was smartly constructed, written. I like the direction. I like the special effects a lot. I really love the character of Kitty Carroll really like her a lot i don't know much about the actress about virginia bruce do you know much about her no i'd I'd like to do find out a little bit more about what else she has done i thought she and john howard played off each other well i enjoyed her interactions with john barrymore oh yeah i mean she frustrated him so much (laughs) yeah she just she had her own agenda i'm gonna turn invisible I'm going to take care of these things. And, oh, yeah, okay, I'll come back and I'll, I'll play along with you now. No, I, I loved it. I loved her. And not bad for second choice here, you know, since they wanted yeah. Margaret Sullivan to begin with. Um, I don't know how Margaret Sullivan would have done, but, you know, who we ended up with did a mm-hmm. really good job. Really enjoyed uh, Virginia Bruce's portrayal here. Now I want to know more about her. I want to know more about this movie overall. You know, that's the downside about some of these uh, – movies that are not considered the top tier monster movies of universal is that you don't have as much material out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We might have to try to do a little bit more digging in and see a little see bit more of a deep dive. Yeah. Yep. I will do some searching on that for sure. And I know I'll be watching this again. Yeah, me too. It, again, it's, it's not a typical universal monster film in any way, shape or form. If you're looking for something a little different that still has that sprinkle of sci-fi in it, it's it's a good way to spend an hour and 15 minutes. It's a fairly yeah. short short film. It's what, about 72 minutes, something like that? Yeah, it, it runs pretty tight, pretty short. Do we know how it did box office-wise? I mean, the reviews were kind of mixed, but did it make its money back? On its release, it grossed just under $660,000. It had a $300,000 budget, so it about doubled its money. Okay, so it made money. Mm-hmm. But I guess not enough to to have Universal continue down that route when it came to do the next Invisible Man movie. Because the next one was The Invisible Agent, which I adore. I love The Invisible Agent a lot. Which, again, took the franchise in another direction. You know, more of the spy, the noir idea. So it's like they're kind of trying to hit all the the genres. (laughs) Hit it all. Yeah. 
Yeah. And then the next one after that is kind of a return to form with, you know, an invisible man taking revenge on people. So yeah, it's, it's really the invisible man franchise is kind of uneven, mm-hmm. but I love that about the franchise because you get so much, like you said, we're going to hit all the genres. We're going to do it all. And then we go flat out comedy with Abbott and Costello's installment, which also references Griffin. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's good stuff. And I am super glad that you wanted to talk about this one, uh, that, that you kind of watched this one and just kind of fell in love. What, what, what prompted you to put this in? Um, it was one of the ones that Scott just put it on and I started watching and it's like, yeah, I kind of like this. Right on. Well, I'm so glad that you stumbled across it because it gave me a chance to kind of break out of what I've been watching a lot of lately and just have some fun with a genre picture. Mm-hmm. It, it's just fun. You know, Barry Moore's awesome. You get some Shemp Howard, which <laughs> was, I forgot he was in it, actually, because I don't associate him with anything other than the Stooges. So right. when, he, when right. he was on screen, he was like, oh, wait, what? what? Oh, I know who that is. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's good stuff. Now, we dove right into talking about the movie, Tracy. Mm-hmm. We skipped something. What did we skip? The classic five. I was going to say, how do I indicate that I'm inserting Steve's thing right here? (laughs) The classic five. We skipped the classic five. It's the game that we play with everybody that comes on the show. And I remember, and I'm not going to forget this time, uh, each card is a this or that. Which movie do you prefer style question? There are no wrong answers. Just a way to pass the time with some fellow monster kids. uh, Keep the conversation going or starting one all together. Tracy, you want to play a round of it? Sure. All right, here we go. Card number one. What Hammer film character was the best dressed? Christopher Lee Dracula is coming to mind. He's pretty damn suave. Yep. I'm trying to remember in, um, well, we've got the Twins of Evil. They They were kind of fashion plates, too. Oh, yeah. When they weren't falling out of their dresses they, they, they were something <laughs> I, i'd have a hard time narrowing it down to one character but all the all the fancy fancy gowns of the ladies in the hammer films okay always always fun to to see those costumes yeah that's what we're watching the women for the costumes that's um, what i'm watching them for <laughs> mostly all right, card number two. Oh, this is so sad because this weekend that we're recording is actually should have been Monster Bash. This is from the Monster Bash expansion. Who's been your favorite celebrity guest to meet at a Monster Bash? Probably Caroline Monroe. We had the opportunity to meet her at one of the October bashes when they had the Ladies of Hammer. She and Martine Bestwick both. They were just so gracious and so charming to chat with, you know, we were able to interview them both for 1951 down place. Well, Scott interviewed them and I, I was the camera hound, but they're <laughs> both such lovely women to chat with. The word is, is that Caroline's going to be there next summer. Uh, if there's a monster bash next summer, she'll be there. That's great news. Yeah. I'm super excited to meet her. She's the one that I haven't met yet. Mm-hmm. You know, Martine's great. Veronica's great. I need me some Caroline. Probably won't say it that way when I meet her. Uh, (laughs) all right uh what was that card number two two. card number three oh this one oh favorite actor to play dracula oh you're gonna make me choose the cards want to know the cards want to know i will answer bela lugosi today 
with the full knowledge that Christopher Lee may be my answer tomorrow. But again, having just recently seen Ed Wood and having recently seen that portrayal, that that Dracula is in my mind at the moment. Yeah. I'm always on Team Bela, but Christopher Lee is so good, too. It's just very different portrayals. It is. You know, they play them totally different. And part of it, I think, is the source material. Mm-hmm. Lugosi's Dracula is very, you know, people use the word stagey a lot. And it is. It feels a lot like a play, which makes sense because it was adapted from the play versus the novel. So a lot of the big set pieces feel like, yeah. Whereas the Hammer stuff is a lot more dynamic. Yes. But Bela had the eyes. Oh, man. <laughs> Yeah. How do you do that? I am double jointed. <laughs> and you must be Hungarian. Yes. You must be Hungarian. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, oh. Speaking of Lugosi, next card from the Universal expansion Fritz or Igor. I kind of know where you're going to go here. Probably more familiar with Fritz. Really? Have you seen Lugosi do Igor? Refresh my memory. Where- uh, Son of Frankenstein and Ghost of Frankenstein is where he plays Igor. I'm, I'm have to admit, I'm not a hundred percent sure I've seen either of those all the way through. I'm sure I've I've caught bits and pieces here. A lot of people say that Igor is Lugosi's best role, best work. And he's really good in Son of Frankenstein. Really good uh, as Igor. But I think Fritz gets forgotten about. Probably overshadowed by Igor, but Fritz gets forgotten about. For years, I thought Igor was in the first film until I actually started watching the movies and realized... Yeah. The name is more familiar, you know? Mm-hmm. All right. Final card. William Castle or Bert I. Gordon? Castle or Gordon? As the director? Sure. I'd have to go with Castle. Okay. Film-wise, film looking at their, their career and films, it's a little bit closer. Everything he Everything Castle brought to the film-going experience all the extra really speaks to me. And I don't know that I, I, at least I'm not as aware of bird eye Gordon doing those kinds of things. I don't think Mr. Big did, but then I don't think anybody really did what William Castle was doing. He really was the the king of the gimmick. Mm -hmm. Have you ever seen any of his movies with the gimmick intact? I'm trying there. There was something that we did. Scott and I did go see where there was, they did some of the, the gimmicks and maybe, I'm, I'm blanking on where. They showed the Tingler here a couple of years ago at the Lovecraft Film Festival, and uh, they only had a few seats rigged. I guess that's how it was done. Uh, right. six, 16 seats were rigged in this mm-hmm. massive theater, and I didn't get one of the tingled seats. However, I did let myself kind of get into the mood, and I'm normally not. I have a hard time getting into the mood of these things sometimes when it comes to these movies and these call and response type things. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not a big fan of Rocky Horror Picture Show. I just I don't get into that. But when Vincent Price tells you to scream in The Tingler, I screamed, <laughs> and I had so much fun screaming. So much fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's probably where I would end up right now, just because I think that was fun. That was just a fun experience overall. Oh yeah, I'm I'm kind of with you. I'm not. I love Mystery Science Theater dearly. Yeah. But I wouldn't want to be in an audience that's making fun of a film. We we got we had the opportunity to see the silent Phantom of the Opera Ooh. in a theater setting and you could tell 
who in the audience was not familiar with some of the conventions of silent movies uh, and was, you know, they were kind of laughing at things that were very stagey and it's like, that's not what you're supposed to be laughing at. Yeah. So that, that kind of bothered me. But at the same time, being in an audience at a castle type of performance where you're expected to interact with right. and react to what you're seeing, yeah, that's the kind of thing that you miss in the home viewing. I mean, I could put in the tingler and watch it and then start screaming in the living room, but I suspect <laughs> the cats or Brenda would want to know what the heck's going on. <laughs> and again, what's the fun in screaming by yourself? <laughs> Good. Well... <laughs> and on that note, this was the Classic Five with Tracy, Indi Tracy Indiana, Tracy Morris from Disney, Indiana. <laughs> well, I think we gave our final thoughts on The Invisible Woman already. We just played the Classic Five, and I just mentioned Disney, Indiana. That's at DisneyIndiana.com. This episode's not going out right away. We've got a few episodes before it, but what, what's coming up on Disney, Indiana so people can know what to either look forward to or look into the archives for? Since a lot of the summer blockbuster films that we would normally be covering haven't been happening, hmm. we've been diving a lot into our audio archives. So the last, oh, for about the last month or so, we've been sprinkling in recordings from the parks, either attraction recordings or entertainment recordings from previous visits. Uh, we are continuing our Mickey Sees the USA monthly segment where we're reading from a 1946 kids book where Mickey and Minnie and Donald and Pluto are traveling across the United States with a travel trailer and it's kind of like a geography social studies lesson you know, oh, that's like, cool. oh well this part of the country it's known for salmon fishing and the mountains and this over here here's Yellowstone and so it's, it's been kind of interesting to see what they chose to focus on in each part of the country we visited so far. That's cool. Yeah. If you go to DisneyIndiana.com, you can see, at least as of today, the episode that you have up. You have pictures from that book scanned in so you can see the progress mm -hmm. or the path that Mickey and company took across the U.S. And they didn't really go in a straight line, did they? Nope. They hit. I think they tried to get them to at least touch on just about every state. Yeah. Oh, they, oh, wow. Okay. So with the picture that I'm looking at right now is the yellowish greenish line where you are in the story at this point. Yes. Okay. Gotcha. Yep. So we're about halfway through. Okay. A little, a little under. Looks like they did really hit every state, huh? With the exception of a couple that aren't really continental, but still that's cool. All right. So again, link in the show notes, uh, or actually link in the permalink section of the website. It is right there. So DisneyIndiana.com is where you're going to want to go to listen to Tracy and her sidekick, Scott. Uh, every, every couple of weeks, there's a new episode. And yeah, I hadn't thought about the fact that movie theaters are not really showing anything right now impacting you guys. I hadn't really considered that. Yeah, because we would have talked about Black Widow. Yep. We would have talked about Mulan. Oh, um, I forgot about Mulan. You're right. Yeah. There was, oh, um, Pixar had a film that would have come out this weekend. So, yeah, we're we're looking forward to eventually talking <laughs> about these movies and eventually getting back to the parks because we also missed out on a, a visit to Disney World that we would have made in, in May and that would have given us all kinds of show material. 
I was going to ask about New Mutants getting pushed back because of it, but New Mutants just always gets pushed back. So Yeah, apparently so. <laughs> <laughs> its mutant power is to never be released. Uh, and, and speaking of the parks, I just read this morning, and I was going to ask you about this actually too. Did they just cancel the Not-So-Scary Halloween? They did. All right, listeners, I don't know if you have uh, any control over any of this, but do your part to keep flattening the curve because if Disney just canceled their Halloween, I don't want anybody else to cancel my Halloween, all right? Amen to that. Just saying. Yes, the mask I want to wear for Halloween is not (laughs) the mask I've been wearing (laughs) since March. (laughs) Well said. Tracy, I'm so glad that you wanted to do this movie. I'm glad you reached out to me, and I'm glad that we were able to knock this out today, recorded a little bit later in the day than we normally do with you and Scott. So thank you for being accommodating. Really appreciate it. And I am just so proud of everything that you guys have done with Disney Indiana. I'm proud to call you my friends and, and just point at these guys and say, hey, look at what they're doing. It's awesome. Well, thank you. And I've, I've really enjoyed all of the Social Distance Saturday events that you've been holding. I know that's got to be a lot of work putting together nine plus hours of films and trailers and documentaries and, and all that fun stuff. But it's it has kind of become one of the highlights of our weeks. And, and I'll tell you what I tell people when they reach out to me about that. It means a lot to me to be able to do it. I love putting together that run of movies and and I know it means a long couple of days for me prepping it, but I love putting it together. And I love that you guys have been supporting me with stuffed with character. And here we go. Stuffed with character. What is it? Stuffed with character are your fandom faves in cuddly fleece form. So I have a couple different sub lines. The one that's most applicable to monster kid radio is the, we belong stuffed characters, mostly universal monsters. I have a Frankenstein's monster, Bride of Frankenstein, Gilman, Dracula, Wolfman, Mummy. Um, I've done a couple other little one-offs. I made a Barnabas Collins for a friend. Um, You have a Kay Richardson to go along with your creature. (laughs) Now, these characters, they're about eight inches tall or so. Uh Uh, They're adorable. They are Typically, under normal circumstances, unless there's one that requires a lot of work, about $15 a piece, right? Right. Uh, Two for $25, according to the Facebook page. Mm -hmm. Custom design requests start at $20. I would recommend people check that out. Uh, As of this recording, she just made a master from Monos the Hands of Eight (laughs) available, and it looks awesome. Thank you. Check that out, too. It's been fun having you involved, and just I really appreciate all of your guys' support. So check out Stuffed with Characters listeners if you want to support Scott and Tracy, specifically Tracy, because I don't think Scott's allowed anywhere near needles, and see what uh, she's got on offer. Especially since she would have sold some at Monster Bash if we were there. Yeah, I do. I do have a nice little um, stash of especially Brides and Frankenstein monsters. So I, I can make you a deal on a pair of those if you're interested. <laughs> Just, yep, tell me Monster Kid Radio sent you. There you go. Stuffedwithcharacter at gmail.com is a good email address to get a hold of them as well. Yep. All right. Well, link in the show notes, of course. Tracy, thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me on, Derek. I appreciate it. 
Tracy and I talked about a couple of things. This recording actually took place several weeks ago, which is when we were still calling what we do on Saturday, Social Distance Saturday. Well, we've changed the name. We are no longer that. What we do on Saturdays on Twitch is the Monster Kid Movie Club. You can find it at monsterkidmovie.club or twitch.tv slash monsterkidradio. And starting at 11 a.m. on Saturday, Pacific Time, we start a block of programming classic and sometimes not so classic monster movies short films television programs commercials trailers all sorts of cool stuff and it goes for at least eight hours and the cool thing about both this and the monster kid astronomy club that i mentioned earlier is that there's a live chat going the entire time normally you're not really encouraged to talk during the movies heck tracy and i even talked a little bit about that in the previous conversation about going to the movies but in the movie club there's a live chat, and you can chat the entire time. I can tell you that this weekend, we are going to be showing chapters two and three of the serial The Phantom Creeps. We're also going to be showing the movies Killers from Space, The Man in the Attic, and a movie from Christopher R. Mim, Destination Outer Space. Destination Outer Space is the movie that Amazon does not want you to see. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that this weekend during the... I guess we'll call it a club meeting at the Monster Kid Movie Club. Again, it's monsterkidmovie.club, and it's free. And I look forward to seeing you in the chat room and sharing some awesome movies with you on Saturday. One of the other really neat things that happens during a Monster Kid Movie Club streaming, screening, screaming, whatever it is, Tracy supports the stream by offering up one of her stuffed with characters slash we belong stuffed figures. And a lot of times they are geared toward whatever movie happens to be shown that week. She'll find one of the movies and she will either dig into her inventory or create a brand new piece that is relevant to one of the things we're showing. And because we're showing the phantom creeps, she's pulled out all the stops, ladies and gentlemen, I've seen it already. She's shown me what this figure looks like. It is the robot from the Phantom Creeps. It is a little bit bigger than a normal stuffed with character, uh, character, but that's partly because that character in the movie was played by somebody who is over seven feet tall, and I think the costume itself is over eight feet tall. It's huge, and this figure is awesome. I'm excited for Tracy and Scott to show you that figure during one of the commercials that they're going to put together. What are these commercials for? Well, it just happens to be a way for you to win your very own We Belong Stuffed character from Tracy. In order to become eligible for the drawing for the figure that we'll be doing on Saturday, you just need to, quote unquote, buy Monster Kid Radio a coffee by going to coffee.com. That's ko-fi.com slash Monster Kid Radio. Every $3 coffee gets your name put into the drawing for the the Phantom Creeps robot stuffed with character. We belong stuffed figure. You know what? Normally we only take entries on Saturday, but let's go ahead and get this thing started. If you want to be considered in the drawing for the figure, and you do not need to be present to win, although it helps, buy Monster Kid Radio a coffee. Again, that's ko-fi.com slash Monster Kid Radio, and I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. This is something that Scott and Tracy are mailing out from their home, so we really can't do anything overseas. So, sorry, guys and gals, if you happen to be over there. But if you're on this side of the planet, (laughs) feel free to enter. And we'll announce the winner at the end of Chapter 3 of The Phantom Creeps on Saturday. Tracy, once again, thank you so much. Listeners, check them out at DisneyIndiana.com. 
skyscraper cities, thriving seaports, glittering nightclubs, and only a stone's throw away, the world's most savage, unexplored jungle. Its terrifying wonders brought to the screen in the pursuit of Kuruku, Beast of the Amazon. Never before such sights. Forbidden voodoo rites of head-shrinking savages. Serpent and Quatamundi in death struggle. Water buffalo in wild stampede. Never before such danger. We'd better go over to them. Come on, Andrea. Me? Why? See the attack of the man-eating fish, the piranha. The bone-crushing assault of the giant anaconda. See white captives facing the deadliest peril of all. Kuruku, lusting beast of the Amazon. Every once in a while, there is a special kind of horror film that becomes a horror classic. In 1931, it was Frankenstein. In 1932, it was Dracula. In 1971, it was Rosemary's Baby. In 1973, it was The Exorcist. And this year it is From Beyond the Grave. Secret worlds become public nightmares where children's play toys are the devil's weapons. A truly terrifying motion picture where death is just the beginning and the grave is not just a resting place. And pleasant rooms become evil tombs. From beyond the grave, the horror picture you will remember all your life. There's been one great disaster after another. First came the theme, then the birds. There was the day the earth stood still, and the day the earth caught fire. If it didn't come from another world, it came from beneath the sea. But now comes the greatest disaster film of them all, the attack of the killer tomatoes. Can nothing stop this tomato onslaught? Yes, disaster fans, killer tomatoes. And the more you try to stop them, the messier things get. <laughs> the attack of the killer tomatoes with a cast of 3,642. The most terrifying movie ever, says Better Homes and Gardens. See! Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. The first disaster film that's truly a disaster. Rated PG. So that brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. I want to thank everybody for tagging along and being part of my Monster Kid Week experience. I have had some issues come up this week, not related to the separation, that really made me question whether or not I was going to get an episode out this week or not. And I received so many messages from you guys and gals, not just lately, but from the very beginning of launching the show over seven years ago, in which you tell me how important Monster Kid Radio is to you in your week, in your life, really. And I'm honored, I'm flattered, and I take that very seriously. So... If any of you guys and gals are struggling, if you need something to take your mind off of whatever is going on in the world, this episode's for you. 
You can find out everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio over at our website at monsterkidradio.net. You'll notice that I have updated the special thanks section of the website over there on the left side of the page. All of the patrons who have supported Monster Kid Radio at the AIP level or higher have their name listed in the special thanks segment. And I love that it's so big. I appreciate everybody's support. Now, next week, I'll be doing the executive producer roll call, which are for the patrons who support the show at the Toho level or higher. So come back if you want to hear the executive producer roll call. You can find out more about what we do over on Patreon over at patreon.com slash monsterkidradio. Again, there's a link on our website. Also on our website, you're going to find our contact information. I mentioned that at the top of the show. You're going to find links to our Facebook page and Facebook group. You're going to find our Twitter Everything that you need, it is right there, including a mention of what's coming up next week. I've already mentioned this once before, but then the schedule got a little weird and I changed things up. You know what? I'm going to set it in stone right now. And of course, having said that, that means something's going to come up. But I'm going to set it in tentatively wet cement. Uh, We're going to talk with David Heath next week about the thriller episode Pigeon's from Hell. Thriller is an anthology series hosted by Boris Karloff and Pigeons from Hell is an adaptation. And their episode of Pigeons from Hell is an adaptation, and I think their only adaptation, of a Robert E. Howard short story. Robert E. Howard is one of my absolute favorite writers. He was a pulp writer. You might know him as the guy who created Conan from Conan the Barbarian, but he did so much more. And David and I are going to talk a little bit about that next week, in addition to talking about that particular episode. Should be a good time. I'm looking forward to it. David's a great guy that I don't have on the podcast enough. So that's going to be a lot of fun, at least for me. I hope you guys and gals dig it too. And with that said, I'd like to remind you that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution No Derivatives 4.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Numero Loco. That is copyright El Rey. 2020. You can find that on their album Transitions, which you can find at lray.bandcamp.com. And that's E-L-R-A-Y bandcamp.com. Check it out. Let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. My name's Sarah Kim Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week when we talk about pigeons from hell and I'm sure a dozen other things. <laughs> Ciao. <laughs>